This week on Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, we talk about what we did over the summer and which one of us did and which one of us didn't do our homework from the live show, the quote-unquote genius of Shane Warne, and are you a climate change denier and you don't even know it? I'm Brie Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabour. Hey, Bridie. Hello, Brie. How was your summer? Oh, my God. It's so good to see you. I've missed you. Yeah. Uh, how was my summer? Well, oh, sorry, I meant yeah, as in I missed you too, not yeah, you missed me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course you missed yeah, me. Duh. <laughs> my summer, well, I've discovered how long the school summer holidays are. They are so long. The term holidays are fine, but summer holidays go forever. I have some big news. <gasps> Hamish, my oldest, has left home. <laughs> Did he like find a long stick in the backyard and tie a handkerchief to the end of it and put his belongings in? <laughs> So he's just turned six last month and as part of the school holidays he flew, he's flown by himself to my hometown, Grafton, and he's staying with my family up there for the week and just before he's leaving because he knows he's going, he's going on the plane by himself like it's a big thing and he comes into me in my bedroom and he's like, Mum, I've got to talk to you. (laughs) And I was like, okay. He's usually not very serious. I said, yeah, what's up? And he's like, I need to tell you something. And I thought that he was, like, confessing, you know, he'd hit Cormac or whatever or, like, he'd broken something. And I was like, yeah, what's up? What happened? And he goes, uh, I'm not coming back home. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, when I go to Grafton, I'm I'm not coming back home. I'm like, where are you going to live? He goes, at Gargoo's. I said, have you talked to Gargoo about this? And he said, not really, but it'll be fine. <laughs> Like, and then I explained, you're coming home. You have to come home. I said, won't you miss Cormac? And he's like, mm, a bit. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not. sacrifice like, I'm willing to make. But he's like, but I'm not coming back. And then anyway, I explained to him, you're coming back. You're, com- you're coming home. You've got to come home. Anyway, and then I heard him in the room packing his suitcase with his little brother, Cormac, who's three and a half. <laughs> and he was explaining to Cormac he's not coming back. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, anyway, so um, I'm going on the plane forever. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And poor Cormac is like, no. Oh, my God. Anyway, he's um, he's been really staunch with it. He's there at the moment. He's still there. Oh, so I'm sorry. So the threat endures. Yeah, it endures. <laughs> so he's up there at the moment and he's like, the, mo- the morning he was leaving, I had to go to work and his dad was taking him to the airport. And I said, you know, bye. I'll miss you. I'll see you on Friday. And he goes, I told you. I'm not coming back. (laughs) (laughs) And um, my sister is trying to tell him. My sister and my dad, I think, have tried to keep telling him, you know, you're going, you have to go home. But I don't think that my mum is making any effort to get that message across. I think mum is just like, you love it here, don't you? I'd love it if you lived here forever too. <laughs> Neck minute, your mum's on the phone. We just missed the flight. Oh, we my just, God. just <laughs> couldn't get into the airport in time. It just happened. There's a great wee school here. That's what she'd say. So is Cormac devastated? Oh, he, yeah, no, he's sad. He's sad that Hamish is not here. But does he think that Hamish is coming back? Oh, yeah. Like, we're not freaking him out. We're not going to wig him out and say that his brother's left home. No, we've said he's coming back. Like, we say to him, you know, four more sleeps, three more sleeps, two more sleeps. It's all good, buddy. I think he's enjoyed some of the attention. Surely. Yeah, just one-on-one attention is fun. 
But yeah, I told him that Hamish is coming back. And they rang, he came home and he wanted to ring Hamish and Bob Carr rang me of all people for a work-related thing. <laughs> and I'm on the phone to Bob Carr and Cormac is like, Hamish, is that Hamish? Oh, oh Hamish. <laughs> and we were having quite a serious conversation. And, you know, I'm like booting him like down the hallway with my foot, like, get out of here. <laughs> Anyway, that's that's actually sums up well my summer. Trying to convince Hamish his alternate reality doesn't exist <laughs> and juggling the kids and work. What about you? Mm, I had a beautiful summer. Went to Queensland with the family. Every year we split exactly precisely down the middle how many nights we spend with my family and my partner's family. That's so um, you. <laughs> being so precise and so fair. I love it. It is diplomatic. It is the only way to go. Uh, drove there with our dog, drove back, and then had one of the best weeks of our lives, my partner and I, where we did absolutely nothing. We had one week in January. In Sydney? In Sydney. Oh, my just God. Just at home with zero plans. We would wake up in the morning and then just get a coffee and take the dog to the park and be like, what do we want to do today? And it was the third best week of our lives. The first best week of our life was our honeymoon. The second best week of our life was our, like, second honeymoon. <laughs> And what it was was a really nice reminder that actually we don't need to spend money or go to some like crazy resort or even have a schedule with exciting adventurous things planned. It was just so, so good after the crazy hectic year I had in 2023 and then what 2024 is going to be. I'm just like that week just was beautiful. Yeah, I texted you and it took you like three days to respond, which yeah. is so unlike you. Yeah, because I was like barely even I love Nigel. I was like, I hope she's I assume that she's just relaxing. <laughs> and I hope that's the reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, which leads me into my announcement, uh, because I have some news, which is that I have decided that 2024 is going to be the best year of my life. And so <laughs> far it's working. <laughs> uh, that goes really well when you set really, really high expectations for something. I've read that's the best way for things to turn out well for you. <laughs> no, I think it is actually great. Great mindset to go into 2024 20, with. Sydney is the best in January, isn't it? When you feel like, especially at the beginning of January, you feel like the city empties out, everyone's like in a good mood, everyone's like a bit loose and it does have like that lazy, oh, well, I remember. I remember when it had that lazy, blazy feel about I was about to say, it. I feel Kicking like- around. When I got back to my desk, what, now like coming up on two weeks ago, as soon as I started emailing people, people were emailing back. Like everyone this year was just, in my experience, back in full work mode by early mid-Jan. None of, I actually didn't experience any of that. Like, love. but you just described that when you said your week in Sydney kicking around doing nothing. Yeah, but then, like, that was like the first week of January, and then it hit. Like, I had quiet time, and then everyone just like went bonk. Everyone was like full speed ahead by 12 13 of January. Absolutely not the experience with everyone I've been trying to commission and bring oh, up really? for my job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, best year of your life, yes. So yes. go. How is it going to be the best year of your life? Uh, You're well, going to have a hit novel? Yeah, yeah, basically that. But also I got these two huge, amazing trips planned, big business plans, big creative plans, big like family and friends plans. I don't know. I just feel like a lot of the seeds I planted for the last, frankly, like three years are now going to flower. I feel really good. I would love to know what's happening in the planets and the stars at the moment. <laughs> 
because I feel exactly the same. Really? Well, I don't know if I would use the phrase best year of my life, but I feel like so many things that I've seeded over the past couple of years are coming to coming good. fruition this year. And um, one of like my a core group of friends, I have three mates, all this really exciting professional stuff yeah. has started started to happen for us kind of at the end of December or towards the end of last year and it feels like we've been slogging it out over the past couple of years and then suddenly these opportunities have started to come up and yeah. exciting things have happened. Yeah. I'm sure that Venus must be doing something. I think maybe Aquarius is in Pluto. It must be because of that. Speaking of the planets, <laughs> listen to this amazing segue, I need to talk about the sun. <laughs> Because today I had approximately 30 pictures taken of my naked body for something called Mole Map. And I want to take this opportunity <laughs> to remind everyone to check yourself for skin cancers. I feel like I know it's really boring compared to Brad. <laughs> yeah, but it's really important. <laughs> I know, but I feel like doesn't everyone just do it? Well, I've always gone for my yearly skin check. And yeah. everyone's so sun. We all have our cabanas now and our rash shirts and our ultraviolet SPF. Yeah, I just think coming towards the end of beach season, even if you put your sunscreen on, just keep an eye on it. You can never be too careful. You know what I love about my skin checks? When they check your scalp, you're like, wow, you're so thorough. Brady's because it's a lot budget. of hair to check. Brady's budget hair massage. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I just think you're really going to catch something. Like nothing's going to um, get missed here. You're going through my whole scalp. Yeah. Well, anyway, that was my, um, yeah, that was my Your public, public health. service. Yeah, Your public, public service, my public health announcement. I have no public health announcements to make. I love doing unhealthy things. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just confirming once and for all that monk mode never actually happened and we're back to <laughs> Friday on the tear actually, mode. I did no, Monk Mode did happen in January for me, actually. Oh, okay. Probably since our live show, especially when I went to North Queensland. And I didn't realise this, but after a cyclone, it's even more humid because so much water has been dumped in the ground and dumped everywhere that all of that. And then it just um, yep, evaporates. Yeah, all that like wetness gets in the air. So it was the most humid, hottest weather I've ever experienced ever anywhere in the world. And I've been up there at Christmas time before, but it was just after that cyclone hit. And I like we'd get our first severe heat warning of the day at like a quarter to eight in the morning. <gasps> oh. Yeah. And it was just, and I'm not a real sweaty person, but I would have to wash my pajamas every day because I would get out of bed in my pajamas Walk around the house order for 30 minutes and then be all like just drenched. soaking wet. And after it was crazy. It's just like such wild weather. But it was good for relaxing because you can't go outside. Mm. Like life has to be lived indoors. I'd get up at like a quarter to six with the kids and take them for a walk. And that would be it. And then it would just be like lying around, watching movies, reading books, playing games, and the, you can't go anywhere or do anything. So I was pretty monk mode up until I had one. Slightly loose weekend, but all the rest of the time I was also oh, work made, made me be monk mode as well. But yeah. um, so during my monk mode summer, I didn't do any of my homework, didn't read the book you gave me. <laughs> Sorry. Very unlike prefect me, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I'm, also, I'm excited am, to read. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Dagger to the heart. I did read books and I did want to read Babel, but I. Would have liked to have read it like lying around or in a weekend yeah. and a lot of – and the book that I read when I was lying around in North Queensland was Grand Days by Frank Morehouse. Oh, I've never read any – okay, yeah, don't skew me. I've never read any Frank Morehouse. 
not. Why would I skill you? No, I don't know. I'm the I'll, last person in the world to have a go at people for not reading or watching certain things. Other people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Oh. It is It is a true feat. You would love it. It So it's Grand Days. It's the first in the Edith trilogy. It's a big, thick book, like more than 600 pages, Ooh. which is why I – very took it days. up to North Queensland because, I, you know, I didn't want to read that while you're working, like, you know, at night after work and in bits and pieces. I wanted to sit for hours reading it and I'm so glad I saved it up for that. And it follows a young woman called Edith, an Australian woman who moves to Geneva in her early 20s when the League of Nations is launching. Wow. And it is so incredible on so many levels, just for what you learn about that period in time, about the League of Nations and how the world was working, and also the trauma that everyone had from the from World War One, but also this, as we all know, extremely misplaced optimism that they were going to never have a war like that again. Mm-hmm. And the League of Nations was meant to be a big part of that. So that's really interesting, but also the way that he writes her interior life and as she learns things and moves through her 20s, it's just phenomenal. Like it's just like a a perfect capture of a human being. And, you know, reading about it, especially at the end of last year, and then reading about like the League of Nations being impotent in the face of war was quite grim. And thinking about how much things change and how they stay the same and how like what happens with misplaced idolism was just Incredible. Like it's such a feat. And I want, I actually want to read a biography of Frank Morehouse now because he sounds like such a fascinating man who I don't know that much about. Like that's the first Frank Morehouse book I've read. But when I when I'm reading the acknowledgements, you know, like he spent, I think, about eight years writing this book. He traveled all around writing the, the world. Writing the first one. Yeah. The first of wow. the trilogy. He traveled all around the world, like lived in Geneva for a bit, researching, going through their archives. Lived in Washington for a bit. Who the fuck's paying his bills? Well, this is when the Australian government had proper art grants because he acknowledges all the grants that he got and, like, it's like Keating-era arts grants. Yeah. And, and and which makes me obviously think about the states of state of art funding in Australia today and what's been lost. And he thanks in the acknowledgements for editing his book your publisher, Jane. Jane. Paul yes. I yeah. I love it when her name pops up. So next time I see her, I obviously have a lot of grilling to do. Mm. But it was a phenomenal novel, so ambitious. Just the detail in it is amazing. The way that an inner life is captured, but also while all these events are happening, you know, like the thing that I usually love reading, ordinary life against the backdrop of extraordinary events. With Although, no email. <laughs> yeah, no email, no phones. <laughs> Although her life is not that ordinary. And also, and there's like just a reflection on, Australian culture at the time as well, which I found really interesting. Like, there's no cultural cringe in it. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I also love. Like someone, you know, a woman leaving Australia feeling like she's becoming European but not having cultural cringe about it, just like very clear-eyed reflections. It's brilliant. You would love it. But read it when you have time to read. Yeah. Not in a busy period in your life. So that's what I read. And I also, I read a few books actually. I also, but the ones that I want to mention, I also read a much slimmer novel called Nothing Special by Nicole Flattery. Did you hear? Oh, yeah, I remember. An Irish writer. She's an Irish writer. Um, She got so well reviewed in the New York Times and in The Guardian. And I feel like it's, um, a banger that never took off. Yeah, like I remember sh- seeing the the sort of press releases and it came out around the time as like Nisha Dolan's book. Yeah. Like, yeah, and there were just too many quickly in a row of 
these kind of like this like millennial fiction in particular by like British and or Irish authors that just kind of got and it's kind of a shame it got framed as millennial fiction because it's about typists a typist in the 60s at Andy Warhol's factory so oh, it's wow. set in New York in the 60s and she's a typist and all this incredibly glamorous stuff is going on around her but it is so on the periphery of the book and like the book is actually just about her job as a typist and That's her cool. and like experience in New York and you know she at times is a genuinely unlikable character and we pay all this lip service to unlikable characters and how great it is to have them but then you have like a really genuinely unlikable character who's also so compelling Cool. Yeah, so I really enjoyed it. And at a sense, like just some sentences in it I just loved as well. Can you give an example of what the character did that was actually unlikable? Because I think this is a really interesting conversation about how we're like, oh, she's so unlikable. There was that one time in the book when she snapped on the phone at someone who. Well, she's incredibly judgmental the entire time of everyone oh. around her. <laughs> is that would be like them. But I loved her being judgmental. But yeah, yeah. like she's not. In, and she's a bit self pitying as well. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so unlikable. Yeah, exactly. It's like genuinely unlikable, but very compelling. It's just so well written. And if anyone read Lazy City by Rachel Connolly, after I recommended, and I know a few people did, and liked that, then you would love this book. Because mm. it's also very, like it's self-pitying but not in that the world is against me and I have no agency mm. way. It's like, it's quite different to like there's no not entitlement like in it. There's, yeah, there's yeah. no victim complex or entitlement in it. But, um, and, yeah, she's just like extremely judgmental of everyone around her and like and quite awful to some of her friends at different points in a way that I didn't think that they deserved. But you totally understand why she's doing it. Like it's very yeah, believable. believable. So that was the other one that I read. And there was a third one actually, but I want to hear what you read. Okay, this is the one I want to talk about. I stumbled across this in the Potts Point bookstore near my home and have subsequently learned that it's incredibly difficult to buy in Australia, but it's called The Upstairs. It's a new release. It's called The Upstairs Delicatessen by Dwight Garner, who is, um, I mean, he's been a critic for the New York Times book review for decades and was the editor of the New York Times book review for a long time. And the subtitle is this, on eating, reading, reading about eating and eating while reading. (laughs) (laughs) Did he do a Grub Street, do you know? Yeah, he did. I I think think he did one of my favourite Grub Streets of last year where he he is a man who really, really enjoys life and really, really loves his wife. Was that him? We will link the Grub Street in the show notes because it was like, he's obviously like really, really intelligent, but also not pretentious at all. It's just like enjoying life. exactly what I want to talk about. There is a way in which Dwight Garner, and the reason I bought this was just because I read and adore his book reviews. And there's a way in which I knew his book reviews were not at all wanky, not at all pretentious. He is incredibly smart and obviously he's got to be one of the most well-read people in the world, but he never kind of holds that above your head and he's never desperate to sort of prove his well-read credentials to you. He will never let that ego game get in the way of just writing a really good piece. And I was hoping and then was thrilled to find out that he has the same completely egalitarian attitude towards eating. There is no like caviar is better than chips. There is no, you know, this cuisine from this place is better than that cuisine from that place. He tells a story or many stories throughout his life of how much he just 
fucking loves food. And then also the other beautiful thing that comes through is just, yeah, how much he loves his wife and kids and how much food is a part of their lives together. His wife is a very successful, and it sounds like, I'm not familiar with her work, but he makes her sound very, very um, quite original and quite exciting um, in the kinds of cookbooks and food writing that she makes. And there were so many beautiful scenes in this book about how he has sort of chosen really consciously to make food a part of his life and his family's life. And what it reminded me of was when I read George Saunders' book about the craft of writing um, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. And one of the unexpected delights of that book are the sections where George Saunders weaves in anecdotes about his wife and his children and how much they mean to him and his work. And I realized it's just possibly because I'm just not reading the works like this that are out there, but I so rarely encounter men who write so beautifully about their families who are not kind of trying to prove themselves in some way. It's prove just, what a great dad they are, yes, a great man they are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not, not like props in their lives. Thank yeah. you. And it just is so delightful. So the book, The Upstairs Delicatessen, it was really short. It was the perfect kind of while I was staying with family in Queensland, the perfect book because you could pick it up and read little sections and then just sort of put it to get down again. And it's broken into, these are the um, sort of chapter headings. I love this so much. There's an introduction and then he goes through breakfast, lunch, shopping, interlude, a swim or a nap, <laughs> drinking and dinner. Oh, my God. And in perfect each, day. Yeah. In each one there are personal anecdotes, really funny or crazy or insightful like literature references or quotes. And I think you and I both love this uh, idea of the kind of long lost trivia and ephemera of like people in literature's lives. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It feels like kind of gossipy I without ev- being mean. Every do- every domestic detail, please. I want to know every single thing about every single person I've ever encountered or read about. Yeah. And then it also has, so it's not only these real writers you know, how they make or how they talk about martinis or whether they were like would have a nap in the afternoon with their pants on or off, like really kind of specific quotidian things. But then also sometimes where it's really, really good, the things that fictional characters have come to be known for if they had really specific habits around eating or reading or reading while eating. And it just, it was just like, it's so, so good. Did you randomly pick it up or yeah. did you have to order it in? Oh, you randomly. No, I listened to one of the few podcasts that I listen to every single week without fail. Like one of them is the Slate Culture Gab Fest and the other one is the New York Times Book Review. And so I already had heard that Dwight Garner had a book out like this and then it was just December and I was walking past the bookstore and I saw it in the window. But now, but it's hard to get, you Yeah, said. really hard to get. I couldn't, you couldn't find, I it, on couldn't find it on Booktopia. Did you look on blackwells.co.uk? I did not. So blackwells.co.uk might have it and they're the site I've referenced before mm. that in, that it's free shipping. The yeah. price is included in the shipping. So, you know, sometimes you go to order a book 
and think it's a great price and then and then it's like $30 shipping to Australia. Yep. So Blackwells might have it because I'm keen and I want a physical copy by the sounds of it. It's beautiful. And it is actually, I will say that as well, obviously all books are objects, but this particular book is a beautiful object to behold. See, like the design is done really beautifully and it's hardcover, but the contents are like pretty slim. It's just, and it's funny, it's really funny and good. And the other book that I read two thirds of, <laughs> Also didn't finish my assignment, uh, was Well, well, well. On Ward. The teacher's pet. By Gideon Did Hay. not complete her task. No. And I gave you a much slimmer book than what you gave me. That is true, but I did read approximately 100 pages more than you did. So. <laughs> <laughs> you win. Um, so On Worn by Gideon Hay. Yes, yes. So for anyone who missed this in December, uh, at our live story, Bridie and I surprised each other with a Christmas gift, which was a <laughs> book that we wanted the other one to read that we didn't think the other one would ever buy and read for themselves. So I read this book by Gideon Haig about Shane Warne on the couch beside my partner while he was watching the cricket. Yes. Okay, perfect atmosphere. I love that you built the proper scene Um, around yourself. And then like my husband was, it was just me reading out all the insane bits and then taking five times longer than I should have to read it because everything I said, like the other people watching cricket, namely my partner and his family members were like, oh, yeah, and then remember when blah, 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 I blah. I love it. Yeah, this it was. a great way to read a book. Yeah, An assigned was. book. <laughs> is it signed? No, an assigned. Oh, right. I assigned it to you. It's like, I, I hope can get it's it not so- I can get it signed <laughs> for you if you want, though. Anyway, I have a few, um, just a couple of choice quotes that I wanted to read out because it's so um, so, for example, this is Haig, Gideon Haig writing about Shane Warne. To the green and gold, he added the coloration, the light and the shade, the noise and the music. Yeah, he did. That's a beautiful <laughs> line. That really is what Shane Warne was like. Did he give you an appreciation for Shane Warne and yes. his genius, his specific type of genius? That's what I – okay, actually, I'm glad you just asked this because we'll cut to the chase. What I struggled with was the numerous examples given in the book about how – lazy and incapable of commitment Shane Warne was. And I realise that I don't quite know how I'm supposed to simultaneously admire and yet be chill about that. Because you can't be chill about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes sometimes it's just if he was a striver, like I don't always admire a striver. If he was a striver, he couldn't have the personality that he that he had and be as funny as he was and as warm and, like, such an enjoyer of all things in life that he was if he was just simply a striver. If he was simply a striver, then he would have been still, you know, the best, one of the best bowlers, if not the best bowler in the world, and he got to be that as well as having a sick having one. A sick one. <laughs> so here's a funny example. I just have LOL written in the margins on page 16. <laughs> So uh, apparently Shane Warne actually really wanted, this is when he was growing up, first and foremost, to be a footballer. I I Um, love how you said that like it's new information. I didn't. (laughs) Sam in the corner, me and Sam are just like, (laughs) Most basic fact about Shane Warne that you can reveal. (laughs) Everyone Um, knows that. He wanted to be an AFL player. (laughs) But then listen to this. In fact, he lacked the talent, the physique, and the work ethic to go further than the reserves. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then? <laughs> oh my gosh. What it did give me an appreciation of are uh, that some parts of a sport uh, like cannot be achieved by pure like input of hours and striving alone. But there is something about spin bowling. Yeah, they like is. his wrist that they don't know what it was. Yeah. But there is something very specific about his wrist. But I think that you can apply that to so many things that people are talented at. Like there is something about, you know who's a good example? Rick Morden and why he is such a talented writer and such a talent when he didn't he grew up with a very loving mum, but he didn't grow up in a house with a lot of books or mm. where reading was emphasised. He didn't go, you know, his school was good, but he didn't go to a school that, like, was striving for academic best. Like, everything was ordinary except for him. Mm. And I, he's someone that I look at quite a lot and think, you know, some people just, there's just something that we can't name or define or know how it happens that some people are just born with. See, it's so funny you say this because I, even listening to you speak that way makes me feel panicked and anxious because as soon as I... Don't, subs- he's never going to work as hard as you, babe. Don't worry. <laughs> as, <laughs> as soon as I subscribe to anything close to that, then I can no longer trust that I might be capable of making good work. Really? Well, don't you, haven't you realised by now, and this is another thing I realised, particularly as an editor, is like you can have all the talent in the world and at times you can have all the privilege and resource in the world and a lot doesn't matter without hard work. Almost everyone needs hard work, obviously apart from Shane Warne. And Rick has worked hard. Like, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I would Rick say. Rick has worked he, hard. Sometimes. <laughs> I, hope, <laughs> I hope he's listening. <laughs> But if you don't work hard and also honestly, and this is, will make you feel panicked as well, just dumb luck. You just, I see it again and yeah. again and again, just dumb luck, right place, right time. And then you get to be a major success. So hard work, especially as I said, in editing and commissioning and working with so many different writers, I think that hard work in writing particularly is the main thing. And also like, I don't think Donald Bradman was a freak talent. Donald Bradman was someone who was in the backyard with a cricket stump and a golf ball hitting the side of a water tank, of a water tank over and over. Steve Smith as well, talented but not a freak talent, and he just works and works and works and works and works and works. So it'll get you somewhere. Don't worry, babe. But sometimes <laughs> we just get to enjoy these freak talents as well and we don't know why where it came from or why they are the way that they are. There's this other line I wanted to read out that's exactly about this, something about every young spin bowler's career um, that Shane Warne was allowed to pursue his ends by exquisite indirection, developing a distance from his craft, a natural perspective, a philosophical streak. (laughs) Do you not think he had that? I never saw him play when he was alive. I was listening to this book that's like, hmm, what he had is different <laughs> and special. It was, but it's true. It was. Yeah. And also the other reason I gave you this and not Shane Warne's actual biography mm. is did you enjoy Gideon's turn of phrase? I did. It and did, writing. Yeah. He's such – I really, really genuinely enjoy his writing so Like much. even the um, – I actually really appreciated some of the parts where he – well, what I actually most appreciated this was when he made me understand – like why cricket is such a big deal in Australia specifically. There's this line in here. Hang on, it's got to be here somewhere. I had to give you a book where you learned something. Otherwise you wouldn't have been too mad at me. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I would have. Um, But it's it's this line where it's like, um, 
Uh, Australia has been said to be a place where everyone is seeking the approval of the garbage man. Oh, yeah. He's so good. Yeah, and I was like, oh, that's the best line in this whole book about Shane Warne. <laughs> He's the best cricket writer perhaps in the world. Like he truly is an amazing cricket writer, Gideon Hay, but I love his writing on culture in general when he does it as well and on Australia and contemporary society. Well, after reading this, I would say I would not read anything more about cricket, but I would consider reading what he had to say about Australian society. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to take that as a win. Okay, here's the final thing I want to leave you with. Here's an image that he creates. There stood Warren at the end of his mark, curling the ball from hand to hand, an action both dainty and menacing, like Ernst Blofeld stroking his white cat. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Yeah. Imagine how he was making the batsman feel each time. And he was making it look so easy the whole time as well. Some of his, um, what do they call that? Chat? Sledging? Yeah. Some of his. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, they call it sledging. (laughs) Some of the sledging has not aged well. But I think that's the case with sledging in general, right? Mm, It's like. I think there are probably quite a few aspects of Vaughn's personality that haven't aged well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was very much a man of his time. Thanks, Brady. <laughs> I also didn't get to watch Poor Things, which I really wanted to over the holidays, because the one opportunity I had to go to the cinema was with my little sister, who I've been the boss of for 31 years, and then suddenly she turned against me and wouldn't let me boss her around. Wow. I said, we're going to the cinema to watch Poor Things, and she said, I'm not going to go watch Emma Stone act like a moron. <laughs> oh. And I said, you're going to like it. It sounds great. Like, you it's know, hilarious. It's, yeah, it's yeah. really funny. And then she just really dug her heels and she's like, nah. And which is like the first time she's ever done and I was quite aghast. And then I caved. Wow. So she's learned a valuable lesson that all these years she could have been. Standing up for herself. Yeah, well, just telling me what to do. And I probably would have done it, but I don't think it's ever occurred to her to tell me what to do. But no, she's very stubborn. She, was, she really, once she decides something, that's what's going to happen. What was the third book you wanted to talk about? This book be called, have you heard of it, um, Remarkably Bright Creatures? I've never heard of that. I don't know what you're talking about. Which is so, okay, it's funny you haven't heard of it because it sold 1.5 million books. Not because of marketing. How common. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> and, expe- throwback. and especially in 2023. Yeah. And 20, well, we're in 2024 now. It was 2023. It sold 1.5 million. Not a big name. She used to work in finance, but she's a stay-at-home mom who lives outside of Chicago. This is her first book. Um, she got a de- really decent advance for it, but it didn't have insane marketing. Didn't go viral on TikTok. Word of mouth. That's no. how she, yes, that's how she sold 1.5 million copies. Good old-fashioned booksellers pushing it and word of mouth and it has just been like something that never, ever happens anymore, a sleeper hit. It was actually released around September 2022 in America, had a spike. She was on the Today Show. It had a spike, then went back down as almost all books do and then started to pick up around Christmas and then just snowboard and snowboard and snowboard from there. And she entered 2023 on like the fiction bestseller list of the New York Times. What a story, isn't it? Wow. And it's, yeah, and so that's what got me interested. I'll put in the show notes the article I read in the New York Times about it that got me interested because, like, to have a good old-fashioned word of mouth hit. And they interviewed all the booksellers who said, yeah, we just have people come in again and again and saying the octopus book. I've heard about the octopus book. Wow, you know what that reminds me of? Just today, literally this morning, I learned that, um, you know, the 
sort of fantasy series Aragon by Christopher Paolini. It's called, no, uh, no, it's, I don't know. It, well, it got made into a film, so like it's you know that level of big. Well, it's just trust me, it's huge, and there are four in the original series, and now another one has just come out over Christmas. Like again, millions of copies in this series. When he finished first finished writing it years and years ago, he had to self-publish it and then like self-fund his tour around the States trying to get it off the ground until finally it was picked up by Knopf and Amazing. See, yeah. I love these stories. Yeah. Like where people just genuinely connect with something. It's possible. Yeah. So briefly the story of this is um it's told partly from the perspective of an octopus in an aquarium. <laughs> And so it's, I'm listening. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, but, uh, but it's also about a widow. Also, I love this that the main character is a woman in her 70s. And yeah. she's had like quite a, you know, tragic things happen to her. And she's a cleaner in the aquarium and she ends up connecting with the octopus. And every chapter you have like the octopus's perspective. And he's quite dry. Who's this sad old lady? <laughs> no, he likes he likes her. Oh, okay. He's into her. He's like, this chick listens to me. And every chapter you have like his perspective and then like it's told kind of third person what she's up to. I w- so I got it from the library. By the way, I've discovered the library, everyone. Have you heard of it? <laughs> I've only just discovered it. It's amazing. That's your equivalent of me telling everyone to check their skin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I can't believe I haven't been using it more sooner. I really dropped off the library in my 20s. Anyway, I'm back on it. So I've got it and I started reading it and I'm not particularly blown away by it. Like I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. Yet I still read 100 pages in one go. So Mm. I'll see. But I just wanted to mention it because I just love the extraordinary story behind it and I'll link to the article. I love those stories because it's easy. You know, you and I have spoken about this before. Once you sort of peek behind the curtain of publishing, it can be really easy to get cynical really quickly about the industry, like oh, any industry, absolutely, I guess. yeah, and um, and especially you just get more and more cynical. Like another fact in this New York Times piece that I was reflecting on is that in the fifty best-selling books of twenty twenty-three in America, only sixteen came out that year, which is another depressing aspect of the publishing industry. Like it's getting harder and harder for books to break through. Like you're publishing more books than ever, but it's harder to break in, mm. and that's why we just see the people reading the same book over and over again. Mm. Anyway, this book, like I am enjoying it. I think that people should pick it up and have a read, but I also just love the story behind it. Mm. Beautiful. Another thing that I read, I think we'll just do one news story this week, yes, because I think the biggest news story of the month, of the summer in Australia has been the weather. (laughs) How about this weather, Brie? What do you think of the weather at the moment? (laughs) In Sydney, it's been more humid than it's been in Singapore. What? Yeah, haven't you? Didn't you know that? Wow. Someone has not been reading the news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we reached, we broke records for our dew, dew point, which wow. the previous record was 23 degrees. But I just remember, like, I've been to Singapore twice, both on quite short stints, and it's a, that's a fucking Yeah, didn't you notice town. it walking around? Weren't you waking up at 2 a.m.? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I really noticed it, like, I really, really notice it in the middle of the night sleeping when I wake up and it's for no reason. Then I realise I wake up, I've woken up because it's so hot and I'm sweating so much. I probably notice it with the kids kids a bit too. But the weather has been crazy. You know, we had that cyclone hit North Queensland and everything was fine and then the flooding happened out of nowhere because that tropical low behaved in a way they don't usually behave and sat over the coast, which was quite freaky. And then the flooding, there was... Do you uh, you remember there was no warning for the flooding, Mm. basically, because it happened so quickly? And then those storms on the Gold Coast were insane. I have a few friends on the Gold Coast that got, like, 
the way that they got hit was dead set like a cyclone. Like they, I had one friend whose roof collapsed in on her bedroom. That's Whoa. how bad this. She was in one of the worst hard hit bits of the Gold Coast, like complete devastation. And then we have down here all the humidity, which has just been insane. And also we were meant to have this long, dry, hot summer, El Nino, and it hasn't worked out because the weather is behaving in crazy ways, which I think is why this piece struck a chord with me. The headline, it's an opinion piece. It was published in The Guardian. Uh, the headline is, when my dad and brother died, I denied my grief the way we deny the climate crisis, but it didn't go away. Doing by Connell Hanna. Connell Hanna is a man who actually changed my life. Really? How? What do you mean? I was working at the Gold Coast Bulletin and he was the editor of Brisbane Times and he offered me a job at Brisbane Times and I said no for a very stupid reason, which you're going to judge me so harshly for. Were you seeing a boy who was on the Gold Coast? So my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Very unlike me though. Very, very unlike me. But my boyfriend was moving. It wasn't that I thought I was going to stay on the Gold Coast forever, although I love the Gold Coast. He was moving to Sydney and I said, I don't want to come and do long distance. I just want to try and get a job in Sydney. But this was a great, like the Brisbane Times, a great entry point into yeah. Fairfax. And he said, okay. And then he rang me back two hours later and he said, I really think you should take this job, Bridie. I don't think you should say no for that reason. And you can come here and just do it for a year and I will help you get a job in the Sydney Morning Herald because I think that you're going to be great at this. You should take this opportunity. Yeah. Didn't, oh and he didn't know me. God. And then he hired She'd like me. send this guy flowers every year. I tell him all the time that he changed. He knows he changed my life. Good. I tell him all the time. And then he, and he was an amazing editor and I went and worked for him at Brisbane Times and then from Brisbane Times was hired for the launch of a little thing called Guardian Australia. Ew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and part of the reason I was hired was because I was working in online news and had online news experience, which not a lot of people, especially junior people, had. Wow. God, 11 years ago it is now. So Isn't long it amazing ago? when yeah. you get a bit of like perspective on your career and oh, you no. really can see certain times. Oh, totally. Just, Imagine if Connell yeah. hadn't called me back. Mm. Don't know. I probably would have gone from the Gold Coast bully to the Daily Telly, I reckon. Yeah, <sighs> completely different career. Anyway, here I am. <laughs> Thanks, Connell. And now he's written this opinion piece that's really made me think. So this article is essentially about he Connell lost his father and his brother last year in the space of a few months which is just something that, you know, I don't think that either us or many people can fathom what the grief of that is like. And in it, he talks about his grief and he wasn't exactly denying his grief, but he was trying to turn away from it or minimise it and not think about it too much and, you know, um, bury himself in work or other things or his kids and all all those other things, probably the admin that he would have had to have dealt with as well, you know, helping his mum. But then he realised he had to confront his grief head on. It's part of losing someone and part of suffering. And then he connects, and this is what I found really interesting, to three types of climate change deniers. And it's from this article in the conversation, it's the academics Ian Walker and Zoe Leviston laid out three types of climate change deniers. Now, the first two, I think, are those who we usually think of when we think of climate change deniers, which is the group who just straight up don't believe the world is warming and the weather is changing. Then there are people who believe it's warming, but it's not human-induced, so don't worry about it, brah. It'll be fine. And then there's the third group who's the biggest who are practising what the authors call an implicatory denial, and that's that the facts of climate change are not denied, nor are they interpreted to be something else. But what is denied or minimised are the psychological, political and moral implications of the facts for us. 
what that's basically saying is that people who acknowledge climate change but who don't change anything about their own lifestyle because, you know, you think, who cares? And this is a train of thinking. Who cares if I use a keep cup or if I recycle? Taylor Swift is catching her jet from freaking Kansas to New York six times in the space of a fortnight and that's just going to completely wipe out any emission savings that I do in an entire year. But it does matter because when everyone thinks like that, no action happens. And if everyone did change their lifestyles, if we all did and there was collective action, then that's when the big impacts happen. And we still need to hold corporations to account, obviously, because there is a strain of thinking that's like, it's neoliberal to say that individuals have to change their actions. When if the corporations change and, you know, the government changed their policy, it would help these things a lot more. Well, we have to do both. Because even if those policies do get changed and those corporations change, that's also going to impact our lifestyle. Like essentially we cannot keep on living the way that we do or the way that many of us do, which is like, you know, whether that's the number of free of clothes that you buy in a year without thinking about where they've come from or the emissions or also where they're going after seven wears, which is a lot of times in the bin for the average person. Or thinking, you know, maybe you shouldn't be flying on a plane to Europe every single year. Like maybe that's not actually sustainable for the planet. So it, and it just like flicked this switch in me in thinking, you know, because obviously I believe in action on all different fronts, but I hadn't read it articulated this way. And it just like provoked a lot of reflection for me on my choices and things that I need to do. The line that I really liked in this piece, which is again, quoted directly from the academics writing in the conversation, is that ignoring the moral imperative to act is as damning a form of denial as any other and arguably is much worse. And I just think like a lot of, it's kind of human nature to think of action as something you do rather than that inaction can be just as bad, if not worse. That's just like sort of not the way. Right. And that works for a lot of issues. Yeah. Like whether it comes to the status quo, right? It's how, um, you know, oppression, discrimination, unfairness, like gets to keep existing when everyone just decides they don't need to do anything about it. It's someone else's job. Which I think like comes, brings us sort of back full circle to something I mentioned in one of the first episodes we ever recorded where I just like care less and less about people's intent and like more and more about whether or not people have actually put in the hours and like made an effort and gone above and beyond. Because there is a way in which people can be and often are just willfully ignorant. They sort of see what's happening. They choose not to engage with that uncomfortable reality, right? We're just... Yeah, what what do you do or are there things that you do that where you try to minimise your impact on the environment or have you thought, like, reflected on this before about yeah, the way you live your life and yeah. I mean, what needs to be different? One of the, um, so in t- I think it was the 2020 Ipsos um, Perils of Perception on Climate Change paper where they surveyed people. I'm going to find this and link to it in the show notes because it was so valuable. They surveyed thousands of people from all around the world and asked them, what actions do you think you could do to lower your emissions? And then compared them to the actions that people would actually have to do in order to lower their emissions. And it was shocking to see the almost complete disconnect between those two things. And the reason I was looking at the paper was because there was some discussion and a kind of argument that it led to because one of the biggest things you can do is have one less child in the same way that one of the biggest things you can do is have one less car and one less around the world plane ticket every year. And so it led to this heated debate about whether or not 
Like what are the sort of ethical yeah, and moral I never, implications? I never love those. It's the way that that debate is framed at times. Yeah, like, it's, it's like tricky. But a lot of people, what I also got from that article was, so I have never and hope to go as long as possible without owning a car. And that single decision has such a huge um, impact on my emissions over time, like year after year. Uh, Also, we stopped cooking meat at home. And as of this year, I pretty much have committed to not eating meat anymore at all. And learning from that report that things like putting your laundry on the line instead of putting it on a dryer is, you know, comparative to things like cars and eating meat is not making that much of a difference. Oh, really? Yeah. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, People frequently misunderstand the sort of footprint of the different actions. Well, the rest of the week is only going to get hotter and hotter. We There's a heat wave coming for the east coast of Australia. So what will you be doing during it? Mm. Well, I leave to go to Egypt in just under two weeks. Terrible for the environment. <laughs> <laughs> um, for every year that I don't own a car, I do get one more around-the-world trip. That's how it works. Oh, is it? Oh, so is, is that how you reduce your emissions to raise them over here and then yeah. it's fine? <laughs> it's the mixing table of my carbon footprint, yes. <laughs> Wait, so you're getting ready for your trip to Egypt? Yeah. You know what it's like when you're like taking a big trip or something where you're just trying to clear the decks before you go? How long is it till you go? Uh, I leave on the 7th of February. So a couple of weeks. Yeah. How exciting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and cleaning the things and sorting out what you've got to pack and yeah. arranging your out of office on what you can manage overseas, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. What about you? Oh, yeah, going monk mode again. Just going to, well, Hamish is going to be returning home. Much so, to his chagrin. <laughs> so I guess I'll be consoling him this weekend about returning to the loving embrace of his uh, mother, father, and brother. And you'll finish your octopus book. And I'll finish my octopus book and report back next week. Beautiful. Well, great to see you as always. So excited to be back in the studio with you and so excited to be back with the listeners as well. Yay. You've been listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest stories of the week. This was recorded on Gadigal land, sovereignty was never ceded, and it was produced by Sam Devonport. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we really appreciate it when you rate and or review. You can also find us on Instagram, which has been very quiet for the past couple of weeks, but we'll be back to normal programming from today, at Cool Story Brie Bridie. Want to hear a cool story? Find us wherever you get your podcasts.